Jaylene Weaver, our very own Jaylene Weaver, uh, tell me one day, you know, you should really try a yin yoga, and it'll help you recover more quickly. And I've never taken a yoga class in my life. And over time, I kept driving past YNG Studios back then, Asana Fit, and I would see the sign and remember Jaylene's words, and finally broke down and came in and took my first class. And it's all started with yin, and I started to recover and heal so quickly that it just blew me away. And that that effect on my body and my mind really led me to where I am now on this continuing journey of yoga and sound healing and energy healing and things of that nature. That uh, I have a very, very strong passion for the practice. I love to teach it. I really look forward to seeing you here so I can share this journey and share this style of yoga with you. Episode 14, The Three Percenter Gang. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the events of January 6th in Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. It's been a quieter time than usual in the Capitol Insurrection investigations, at least in terms of the number of arrests. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to do an episode that would focus more on a specific theme rather than mainly on the news. I got so much positive feedback from the Proud Boys episode, episode three, that I thought it would be a good time to focus on one of the other main extremist organizations that were at the tip of the spear on the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, the Three Percenters. First, I'll review the charges contained in the indictment of the main group of Three Percenters charged in the Capitol insurrection, a group of six men who were indicted on a seven-count indictment, a group that called themselves the California Patriots, D.C. Brigade, which included uh, four men who were affiliated with Three Percent Movement, and then um, three other men, two of whom are charged, one of whom is an unindicted person one. After that, I'll focus on explore the history and the ideology of the Three Percenter organization with a particular focus on the group's founder, one Michael Vanderbilt of Alabama. But before I move on to the Three Percenters, let's have a quick recap of the news regarding the ongoing investigations and court proceedings. I realize I've been a little inconsistent in how I've been doing this, partly because I've been relying on different sources, so I've settled on just sticking with one uh, just to ensure consistency. I'll be using the tabulation from Sedition Tracker at https colon backslash backslash seditiontracker.com suspects by name, by status, excuse me. So if you're keeping track, uh, this might result in a little inconsistency as these are federal charges rather than, say, some of the local arrests. Uh, which I was including in my own spreadsheet, um, but should be consistent from here on out. So, so far we've had 605 individuals charged, 289 indicted, two deceased, uh, Joseph Barnes, who died in a motorcycle crash in June, and Christopher Georgia, the banker from Georgia, I know that's confusing, uh, who committed suicide on January 12th. Mm, he's not going to be charged, obviously. One dismissal, uh, Christopher Kelly of New York, 65 convictions, and still stuck at six sentencings. And so, of those convictions, uh, the vast majority have been those misdemeanor defendants, um, the paraders and the like. Now, we're seeing more and more court dates being scheduled with a docket that's extending well into 2022. Um, So, while it was a light week for new arrests, it's been a very busy week for plea deals, uh, with I think four or five of them coming on Friday alone. 
In other news, on September 9th, the House Select Committee announced that they have received thousands of pages of material as a result of the requests made two weeks ago. Exactly what they've received and from whom, we don't really know. They've specifically noted receiving material from other congressional committees that have investigated January 6th, and I'd expect that those committees have done their best to give them everything that they have. Much of the material they have requested is from the National Archives, and that material is still apparently under review at the National Archives, so the investigators haven't had a chance to start reviewing it. Now, those are the materials I discussed last episode, much of it from the White House and Trump's administration, that really probably holds the most promise of providing some insight into what was actually happening at the White House, not only on January 6th itself, but also in the weeks and days leading up to the insurrection. According to reporting from CNN, the 35 telecommunications social media firms that received requests from the committee to preserve all material from hundreds of named individuals, but they're not being particularly forthcoming about what this process entails. Um, but to the extent to which that they are, you know, or are not complying, uh, nonetheless, some of them have, you know, come out and said, well, we're, we're complying. So we don't know, uh, you know, what these pre preservations of documents mean, other than the fact that there's 35 telecom and social media firms, and they're supposed to be preserving these accounts, uh, the, these, this data, and uh, that way, you know, in the event that they want it to be made available to the House Select Committee to investigate January 6th, that material will be there. Now, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, uh, who's one of the officials whose records are being sought, uh, again, that preservation order uh, could be sought, has criticized the work of the Select Committee in seeking to preserve the records. Um, he's implicitly threatened firms that comply with the committee's requests with retribution, uh, saying that, you know, there will be consequences if Republicans ever, ever gain the majority in the House. And I, I think that's wholly inappropriate and, and not a great look for him. Um, McCarthy claims that the request violates federal law, and he's holding out this fig leaf that he's trying to protect the privacy of average Americans. But we have to remember, it was under Republican George W. Bush that the government was granting sweeping power to surveil people's telephone data, right? So, you know, everyone remembers it, the Snowden revelations. So I don't know where uh, Kevin McCarthy stands on that. This is not analogous to that. Uh, this is looking at data regarding one particular event that is important for the investigation and also just historically. Um, we know that McCarthy spoke to Trump on January 6th, and McCarthy claims that uh, he asked Trump to call off the mob. And it's been claimed by Republican lawmakers on background that McCarthy asked Trump, who the fuck do you think you're speaking to? Right. So the, the tone of the conversation uh, was probably be in, of interest to the committee. Now, it's very strange that Republican lawmakers such as McCarthy and Mo Brooks claim that they have nothing to hide, and yet they're fighting uh, this release of data or records. So, in the end, it seems likely that the, the select committee are going to get the records, and they're you know it's going to be up to them to to uh, make the determination uh, just how boring they are 
Mo Brooks said, well, the, the main danger from someone getting my data is that they're going to be bored by it. Okay, bring it on. Let's see what it says and let the public and the committee decide whether or not it's terribly boring. There are also developments in the story of John Pierce, the attorney who's at one time representing as many as 18 defendants. I had said in the last episode that Pierce was trying to recruit Shane Leiden Jenkins, subject of an earlier episode, as a client. And I assumed in that episode because at the same time it was announced that he was missing court dates and was kind of MIA, uh, that is to say Pierce, that Jenkins wouldn't be uh, going with Pierce. But it turns out that no, in fact, that's, that's, that's a thing that's actually happening. Uh, you'll remember Jenkins from all the way back in episode two, uh, where I presented him as a kind of a case study of a January 6th case, wherein a, a self-radicalized ex-convict who appears not to have been affiliated with any of the extremist gangs who are at the center of the insurrection, nonetheless went to D.C. and is alleged to have committed violence against the police. Now, Pierce, of course, is the attorney who's, you know, just AWOL, talked about last time, missing his court dates. Um, and he's allegedly sick with COVID uh, and possibly on a ventilator. Um, but that story, is, he has, has said, well, I, it's personal. He was missing for something like 12 days. He was barely in California. I don't know. I mean, the only things that come to mind um, are, you know, possibility of COVID, right? Self-isolation and quarantine. Um, or, you know, maybe rehab. I, I honestly don't know why an attorney uh, having this many clients would be missing his court dates um, and saying he's in the hospital. You know, what, what possible reason uh, could, could there be for that? But now again, Jenkins, I assume you would back out of this because, uh, you know, your attorneys are not making their dates, but uh, he's apparently a client now. And just, you know, another really great decision that Shane Leiden Jenkins has made. Um, but yeah, Pierce says he was in hospital in LA for 12 days and he claims he wasn't vaccinated for COVID, but hasn't given a specific reason for his hospitalization. Um, even though again, sources who might be in a position to know, i.e. someone from his firm who he sent to do his business in court, even though he's not an attorney, um, said it was COVID. So some of the response stories said he was unresponsive, he's on the ventilator. Um, I think that might have been premature. Could be a whole thing is, is just a, a red herring. Um, you know, his Twitter feed was active the whole time. So could just be that he was simply in isolation for, for some reason, COVID. Um, at any rate, if you want to look at his Twitter account, it's at CaliKidJMP. And it's pretty clear why he's chosen to represent so many of these insurrection defendants. Anyway, sorry, the dog. Anyway, if you look at his Twitter feed, it's pretty clear why he's representing so many capital insurrection defendants. Uh, he thinks they're correct. He thinks that what they did was somehow justified. Um, and there have even been stories about him using his clients to recruit other clients for his firm in the D.C. jail. And based on his behavior, you know, that's probably true. Um, he's on a mission to, to just gather them up. It's kind of the opposite of the DOJ. They want to put him in jail. He wants them as clients.
There's also been an interesting development in the Capitol Police Office of Professional Responsibility Investigations, uh, the OPR investigations, into allegations of misconduct by Capitol Police on January 6th. On Saturday, September 11th at 6.20 p.m., the Capitol Police announced that they'd be releasing the results of the investigations. Now, we knew that this was coming. Uh, these cases are going to have uh, basically serve as evidence. Uh, the information contained in them has been requested by the attorneys for the defendants in the Capitol insurrection cases. And so they're trying to argue that Capitol Police permitted and authorized their behavior in storming the Capitol. It's a ridiculous argument. Nonetheless, they do get access to that material. So, of the 38 investigations, uh, the Capitol Police investigated themselves and found that there was no misconduct in the majority of the cases. In 12 cases, and this is one that really strikes me as odd, uh, in 12 cases, the Capitol Police, OPR, Office of Professional Responsibility, claimed that they were unable to identify the officers involved. Now, this seems problematic to me. They know who was on duty, and this was the most well-documented crime scene in U.S. history. So if open-source intelligence people using material video on the Internet can identify people whose faces are more or less entirely covered, right, as we saw last week with uh, the, the flag gator guy, and they do it using video evidence, then presumably the Capitol Police, who has a roster, a, a duty roster of everyone who was on the job during that shift, they'd be able to identify their own officers. They're a law enforcement agency, right? They're not just volunteers on the internet. They have actual resources, but somehow they failed to identify 12 of these officers. But whatever, moving beyond that failure of policing, uh, yet another failure of policing. Uh, in 20 cases, the Capitol Police cleared their own officers of misconduct, and the details of that are going to be forthcoming. In six cases, they found causes for disciplinary action, three of which for conduct unbecoming, one for failure to comply with directives, one for improper remarks, and one for improper dissemination of information. Now, the timing of the release of this information, the, the tweet, um, again, 9-11, 20th anniversary of 9-11, 6.20 p.m. I, I was curious. And looking at the Capitol Police Twitter feed, it appears that uh, it's what you would expect from a government Twitter feed. It's mainly 9 to 5. Sometimes they get up very early in the morning. There are some there from very early in the morning. Uh, but it's rare on the weekends. Uh, there were a number of them on Sunday uh, Independence Day having to fall on a Sunday this year. So everybody loves the holiday pay differential. Uh, and so the Twitter feed was quite active that day. But as far as Saturday days go, um, there are not a lot of tweets that occur on a Saturday. There are not a lot of tweets that occur on uh, after 6 p.m., right? So, you know, sometimes, you know, presumably someone might work a late, get a little overtime. Capitol Police probably do that. Federal employees like to do that. They like to get overtime when authorized, uh, comp time, if it's not. And so I, I decided to look back at the last 100 tweets from the Capitol Police Twitter account. And of that 100, 
only 20, only four, sorry, were tweeted after 4 p.m. And there were only two, counting this one, two tweets in total on a Saturday. So why does this matter? It, it, you know, we talk about Friday news dump, doing it on a Saturday when really there's no compelling reason, right? A lot of the times when they're tweeting on the weekend, it's because there's some kind of emergent situation uh, that is, you know, newsworthy. Uh, and this is an administrative matter, you know, could have done it on Monday, could have done it, you know, sometime uh, this past week, uh, but they decided to do it on a Saturday. And so it's like a, you know, like Friday news dump plus. I mean, you try to bury a story, you release it on a Friday. It's an old PR trick. And they did it on Saturday after six. And oh, and by the way, it happens to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. There's a weird sense of which it is appropriate, right? Because 9-11 was also marked by remarkable policing failures, remarkable intelligence failures. Um, but, you know, this matters because the, the evidence in these cases is relevant to the Capitol insurrection cases. And any sign of complicity from the Capitol Police is going to be used by defendants as a kind of Chewbacca defense, right? They have no defense. They're on video. We know what they did. <laughs> They've been identified six ways to Sunday uh, in terms of their, their identity. Uh, and so one of the things they can do is just try to distract people and say, well, you know, yes, but they were waving us in. Or yes, but look at this guy taking selfies. Or yes, but look at these guys, uh, you know, who uh, are, in one case, there's a lieutenant who's actually wearing a, uh, you know, a, a Trump hat and trying to talk to, to Trump supporters, which to my mind, he's out of uniform for one thing. For another thing, you have to look at these, this is a gang, right? They're wearing gang colors and they're attacking the capital of the United States. You don't put on the enemy uniform. You certainly don't put on the uniform of the enemy Trumpist gang, which is what they were on that day. Uh, and this is lieutenant. So if you see that from leadership, you know, that's a problem. And there's Eric Waldo, of course, uh, who was the, you know, basically, effectively, uh, the, the highest person in command on the day. And uh, he left his duty station, right? Uh, in, presumably, they have some kind of command center. He's supposed to be on the radio. And there, there was radio silence. Many officers commented on that. And he went to go mix it up with the, the insurrectionists. You know, um, arguably, that, that is not... That is not good practice in federal law enforcement. In these kind of mass riot situations, you need some kind of effective command and control. And even though I'm sure he's a scrappy guy and he's popular with the officers, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's not what the training would say that you're supposed to do. And so I, I don't know if he's one of the people uh, who they're investigating. Um, now... Again, the, the defendants are claiming all kinds of exculpatory evidence exists and they're being denied access to it. Um, so eight months later, again, 20th anniversary of 9-11, they're going to get the results of these OPR investigations with the names and the other identifying information redacted, of course, uh, because these are confidential personnel matters and these are, after all, federal employees and law enforcement officers. Now, none of which, of course, you know, should be in held to impugn the behavior of the vast majority of the Capitol Police, hundreds of officers, uh, some of whom weren't on duty and came in when they saw what was happening 
on television. Um, but again, if there are questions regarding the response of law enforcement and the national security establishment, uh, you know, and issues regarding the department, there should be accountability and there should be transparency uh, regarding the conduct of officers who, after all, were protecting democracy and should be held to a very high standard, right? The Capitol Police espouses very high standards with regard to training and discipline. And this is a training and discipline issue. It's also a leadership issue. So uh, hopefully we'll learn more as this goes forward. But I think a lot of people, a lot of the questions, you know, we all know if this was a different group of people, the response would be very different, right? Uh, we saw the response to the BLM protests. Uh, you know, they were absolutely ready. They were over ready. They were over prepared. They had National Guard helicopters volunteering, like buzzing people. Um, and, you know, they then turned around and used the excesses of the Trump administration responding to the BLM protests to actually justify their inaction against the Trump crowd, which is worse. It's arguably worse. If you're going to have these harsh standards, you should pose, impose them across the board. So when you have white nationalists waving Confederate flags, your response should be uh, the same as, you know, like you should respond to peaceful civil rights protesters more harshly than to an actual mob armed with weapons and batons and axe handles and bear spray. So there's a problem. And they, you know, this nonsense about releasing it on a Saturday uh, after six uh, doesn't really help, in, in my opinion. Again, doesn't do anything uh, to impugn the honor uh, or the service of the hundreds of officers who did their duty. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the, the still unresolved questions with regard to the conduct of officers who are on video, um, out of uniform, uh, away from their duty station, and uh, not following what we might regard as best practices. So that's just a bit of a recap of the events since our last episode. And I wanted to get a chance. I know I've, I've left some things out. Um, you know, cases are, are proceeding as one might expect. Uh, there's a Caldwell case, of course, the, the change of venue, um, which I, I think I, I might want to address separately, uh, because that document is just a, a, a real piece of work. Um, in any event, you know, Caldwell's attorney said that, that people in DC were just bigoted and prejudiced against his defendant. And it implied that they were not real Americans. Um, and they were biased against Donald Trump. And Judge Maida in the case today actually uh, denied the change of venue request. Um, and he actually didn't dignify many of the claims that were in his attorney's document. And I was simultaneously pleased by that because really he should sanction the the, the attorney in this because there is, is dog whistle racism, right? Oh, the people in D.C. aren't real Americans. We know what you mean. Uh, he, he actually, in a footnote, denied the severity of the Tulsa massacre uh, and denied the, the hundreds of people who were massacred in Tulsa uh, and, you know, claimed that it was a, a race riot and it was instigated by black residents of Tulsa. It was just egregious. And 
It was absolute nonsense. Garbage. Just absolute garbage. Racist crap. And um, made it pretend that it didn't exist. Uh, it should have been stronger than that. So now we've cleared the deck, we can move on to the subject of the three percenters. And we'll start with uh, an arrest this week. Uh, the arrest of Corey Ray Brannon, who was assigned the hashtag DrabP3 by the online sleuthing community. Of course, the three P in that hashtag uh, belongs to three percenters, right? Drab, three percent, you know, three P. He's wearing um, a three percenter patch on his tan tactical vest. So, um, interestingly, like many three percenters that recruit, you know, they, they recruit heavily from law enforcement and the military. Um, he's actually both. So he's a, he's an army veteran, uh, but also worked as a sheriff's deputy and a correctional officer at the Midland County Jail in Texas. So only a couple of re arrests this week, but one of them was a three percenter. And so I knew I wanted to do an episode on the three percenters. I won't do anything regarding his case uh, as yet, but I figured, you know, the, the universe, the stars are aligned. Uh, might as well go ahead and, and do this one. I know eventually later on, I am also going to do the Oath Keepers. I've been kind of keeping away from their, their super indictment um, and waiting for further developments. Uh, I think out of all of them, um, this might be the, the, the most interesting case in, in many respects. Um, if, if you look at the, especially like the Oath Keeper ties to Roger Stone, for example, and there, there's a lot going on. Uh, has the most defendants, I believe, of any of the, the conspiracy and obstruction indictments. Um, but if you were to just look at, like, you know, people who are charged in the documents as three percenters, right, you know, they figure most prominently in um, the, the indictment that I'm going to discuss in detail today. But there were many other three percenters at the Capitol insurrection. And we know this because many of them chose to wear three percenter gear to the insurrection as uh, Corey Ray Brannon did. So one of the problems in examining how many three percenters were there is of course there's, there's no national list of members, right? There's no definitive list. Um, and this week I'll, I'll mainly be looking at the six individuals named in the conspiracy indictment before I, I turn to uh, the subject of looking at three percenter ideology uh and uh mike vanderbuck the founder of the three percenters um you know i'm, I'm certain that they're probably beyond the people who are wearing three percenter gear uh many more people who identify with the three percenter movement um and i know like you know Oath Keepers, right, uh, Stuart Rhodes has said he was in many ways inspired by the Three Percenters, and he considers himself a Three Percenter. So, um, you know, there's overlap between these two movements and organizations. But here's a partial list of the people who I've identified and others I've identified uh, who were wearing Three Percent gear at the Capitol Insurrection. Now, it's unknown to me whether they all actually take part in three percenter training events or other activities. 
Um, some of them might have just bought a patch, put it on their plate carrier, bought a hat, whatever, bore the flag, uh, called it good. But again, that's part of the design of the movement itself. It, it has a very low bar to entry. Um, you can basically become a three percenter by saying you're a three percenter. Uh, unlike the Proud Boys where you have to recite five breakfast cereal brands while they, they, they beat you. And in a rather half-hearted manner, by the way. They, they beat the cops a lot harder than they, they beat the guys that they're initiating in the gang. Um, yeah, there's, there's nothing like that. So uh, here, here are the, the, the nine I've identified outside of the six-person indictment. Um, and again, uh, of the six, only four are actual three percenters. I'll talk about that in a moment. Robert Gieswine, Anthony Antonio, Sean Watson, Rasha Abdul-Ragreb, Corey Ray Brannon, uh, again, arrested this week, Ronald McAbee, Guy Reffitt, Barton Shively, and Douglas Sweet. So, let's talk about the, the uh, DC Brigade conspiracy indictment that is going to be one of the main focuses of, of the rest of the episode. There's Alan Hostetter and Russell Taylor, who are not technically themselves probably three percenters. Um, they they have their own organization they call the American Phoenix Project, but they were tied to and organized with and engaged in a conspiracy with four other men from a neighboring county. Uh, those men lived uh, in uh, Orange County, uh, just in the east of Orange County, if you're familiar with California. Uh, you have Riverside County. And um, the men who were arrested there are Eric Warner, Felipe Antonio Tony Martinez. You can hear the air quotes. Tony Martinez. And Derek Kennison and Robert Mele. M-E-L-E. So, uh, also, in addition to these four three percent conspiracy defendants, uh, in the indictment, there's an unnamed person one, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, okay, well, we'll just talk. <laughs> it's probably, almost certainly, Morton Irvine Smith, um, who's uh, like um, Hostetter and Taylor himself, not a three percenter, uh, but nonetheless appears to have allegedly uh, participated in a conspiracy via telegram with the three percenters to storm the Capitol. And in addition to all these people, the people who've been uh, arrested and charged, there are several other people who are depicted in the FBI bolo photos uh, who appear to be wearing three percenter gear. And I didn't tally all of those. Um, so, you know, possibly, I mean, in terms of aggregate numbers, as important as the Oath Keepers uh, or uh, the Proud Boys. Now, the, the three percenter insurrectionists who've been charged so far face the full gamut of charges, a panoply, everything that's possible, uh, assaulting a federal officer, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy, as we'll talk about in a moment, um, possession of a dangerous weapon on Capitol grounds, uh, you know, and the, the normal parading uh, and those, those other misdemeanor charges. So I'm pretty sure I've... I've failed to list some of the three percenter members who've already been charged and we know that there are others who have not been charged yet but probably 
will wind up facing charges. Before I go into the details of the conspiracy indictment itself, I'd like to examine uh, the question of nomenclature. I prefer to refer to the three percenters as a gang rather than a militia. Many of media reports tend to call them a militia, and I think that this is a category error. Uh, the founder of the group, Mike Vanderbilt, explicitly claimed that the three percenters were not a militia, in part because there was already perception in the 1990s and early 2000s that militias were dangerous and criminal. This was in the wake of the Murrah building bombing in 1995, right, by Timothy McVeigh, who was associated with Michigan militia groups. And so Vanderbilt was quite aware of, of that baggage, and he himself came out of the militia movement, saw what the Oklahoma City bombing did, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a different section, but, you know, uh, was keenly aware of the reputation that militia movements had um, at that time, and uh, quite frankly, it's still today, right? They're dangerous criminal organizations. So, nonetheless, you know, the media still refer to these organizations as militia groups, and I think that's a mistake. We don't have militias anymore. You're talking about the National Guard. We talk about the militias that they're talking about in the Constitution. That's the National Guard. And some members of the Three Percenters and other groups like to refer to themselves as militias, even though, again, Vanderbilt said, eh, we're not a militia. Um, but they do this in order to confer a false legitimacy on their activities, because militias are explicitly mentioned in the Constitution in the one amendment with which they are familiar, of course, in the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment. So I really think that referring to them, uh, it, it's a category error. These are not militias. Militias are authorized by the state. These are violent, armed groups engaged in an ongoing criminal enterprise. They have initiation rituals. They wear gang colors. They get gang tattoos. They claim control of turf. They put it right in their names. You know, three percenters of Alabama or whatever. Um, they have this kind of countercultural identity that serves as a ideological justification for their actions. So I think perhaps some folks in the media prefer to use the, the militia label because they see these groups as political and rather than criminal. But here too, we should remember that many street gangs are in fact intensely political. They have like founding documents. They have statements of ideology. Um, some of which, you know, look at MS-13, right? evolved out of a, polit a radical political movement. And uh, also, I just think that on the part of the media, yes, there is a connection to the militia movement of the 1990s. And I think it, it's important to recognize that. But I, I think the militia label is a kind of a whitewash. There's this inability and unwillingness to recognize that a group comprised mainly of middle-aged white men can be a gang. But if you put these guys on motorcycles, they would look like 1% outlaw bikers rather than 3% Minutemen. And there's probably uh, some overlap. So the three presenters aren't a centralized organization with an organizational chart. But there are lots of other gangs out there that also fit that description. 
they don't have an org chart. Um, you know, there are lots of them that do. They have hierarchies, they have ranks and grades. Not true of the three percenters, um, it, but nonetheless, to my mind, they fit the description, description of a gang better than a militia. Militias are authorized by the state. Um, these, this is a group that is organized and take up, taking up arms uh, for the very possibility of, of violence, political violence, and as a consequence, should not be given the name militia. So here's a quick checklist from a 1998 article by G.W. Etter that appeared in the Journal of Gang Studies that describes the, the, what he uh, has as 12 characteristics of a gang. Many gangs and gang members share numerous characteristics, including, one, a code of conduct, two, selective membership, three, loyalty to group above all else, four, frequently violent initiation rites, five, no respect for law or fear of jail, six, use of totems or paraphernalia to show membership, seven, unique tattoos, colors, clothing, jewelry, eight, involvement in crimes to make money, nine, internal organization and structure, ten, use of violence to achieve ends, eleven, unique funeral rites, and twelve, unique methods of communicating. Um, you'll see, if you are familiar with the three percenters and what they did uh, on January 6th, or perhaps uh, beyond that, they, they, they hit almost all of these, right? Selective membership. They look for law enforcement, military, uh, people involved in emergency services, the loyalty to the group. Well, some of them are, are in fact, you know, racist, and they identify with other people uh, who are associated with, with patriot movements. Um, they have no respect for the law, right? They set themselves up. They, they don't respect their monopoly of violence of the state. Um they use totems or paraphernalia. They have unique tattoos. As a matter of fact, there have been police departments all across the country who have either disciplined or failed to discipline officers who have 3% tattoos. Unique tattoos, you know, unique um, colors, right? They, they like to wear all drab. They like to wear camouflage. They like to wear these uh, plate carriers. Uh, they, they have a very similar look. They, they have an identified, viable paramilitary, live-action, role-playing look that they like to use. Um, and, you know, means of communicating? Well, as we'll see in the conspiracy indictment, uh, they're fond of using encrypted communications, such as Telegram. So I would submit that 3%ers and other similar groups fit this definition of a gang much better than the category of a militia, because a militia is sanctioned by the state and... The three percenters, as we saw on January 6th, are opposed to the state. They're actually opposed to democracy. If they lose an election, they storm the Capitol. These are not people who really should be calling themselves a militia. They're a violent insurrectionist group. So let's take a little time here to explore the allegations contained in the main indictment against the three percenters, uh, these four individuals plus two or three uh, that I mentioned earlier. Now, the main figures in these groups, not actually three percenters. Uh, Alan Hossetter and Russ Taylor, and this yet as yet unindicted 
person one who is certainly uh, Morton Irvine Smith. Now, at this point, I would like to acknowledge and credit the invaluable assistance of Toxic Wooden Woman, uh, who I found on Twitter, uh, who I reached out because I saw her many are excellent uh, posts about the three percenters and about uh, far-right violence in uh, Southern California, Orange County, and those environs. Um, and she helped me understand the rather complicated dynamics of the far right in Orange County. And she has a number of excellent threads on the subject, all of which I read, and I've decided to, as much as possible, not duplicate, because I don't actually want to steal it. Uh, so you can check her out at Autre, A-U-T-R-E underscore capital V-I-E. R-G-E, Altre Vierge, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So thank you uh, very much. Um, had a, a, a very interesting conversation about this. And I want to give credit where credit is due because this is very much, there's a national 3% movement and uh, this is very much uh, involved with the reaction to the COVID restrictions in California as we'll see in a moment, and a very particular set of actions and activities that were taking place in 2020 that involve Alan Hostetter. So let's dive into who he is. Alan Hostetter is an Army veteran and a former police officer who, oddly, again, he's not a 3% member, but he would totally qualify for membership. So it makes sense why he might have some affinity for this group. He was eventually, uh, after a long career in the uh, military and law enforcement, hired as the chief of police for the city of La Habra in Orange County, California. And he worked at this job for some 18 months um, before being medically retired from what he claimed in an interview was some psychological ailment involving Xanax, Ambien, and wine. So worked eight months, then he went on medical disability retirement. So some of the reporting blames the retirement on spinal issues, but again, according to the same interview, um, he, he talked openly about the, the mental health issues uh, that you know, he basically claimed, well, I would take Ambien or Xanax uh, with a wine chaser, and he had apparently some kind of mental breakdown. Um, he had issues with the cervical spine, but apparently that actually uh, arises uh, a bit later. So at some point, due to his physical and uh, mental issues, uh, he took up yoga and he becomes a yoga instructor and apparently also a Reiki practitioner, right? Reiki is a thing where you wave your hands around and adjust people's chakras and get their energy in alignment flowing properly. Um, so, you know, okay, I, I don't want to mock anyone's spiritual practices. I, it seems like a lot of woo to me. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure yoga, actually, I've, I've done yoga myself. It's very enjoyable. I'm not sure about Reiki. It seems, uh, you know, waving your hand around, around somebody, probably. Anyway. Um, so... Yeah. Now, I mean, it's kind of a side note. I mean, it, to me, there, it is amazing how many of the people who are involved in these kind of alternative practices, 
wound up in an angry mob at the Capitol on January 6th at Trump's behest. I, you really kind of, you think that they would have been more chill, right? I mean, if your chakras are really aligned, you're not going to be susceptible to all those those negative vibes, man. You know? Um, I mean, I, I think I, I played a little... Uh, Hosser's removed most of his, his, his videos. I played one that was still publicly available on Facebook. Uh, that was actually what I had in the intro this week. And, you know, he should have just stuck with yoga. I mean, you know, um, yoga Alan Hosser is pretty chill. Political Alan Hosser is a bit of a dick. Um, oh, and by the way, when I was going into this, you know, Hosser pals around with these rich guys. And I thought, oh, well, he's kind of, like their their sock puppet or something, um, but apparently, according to public records, uh, Hostetter pulls in one hundred fifty six thousand dollars a year thanks to his medical retirement, um, which is more generous than like you can get. You know, I mean, he's working uh, at La Habra, which is not you know, uh, whatever. I mean, it's like. That that's that's better. That's a better deal than you're going to get almost anywhere uh, in law enforcement uh, for a medical retirement. So, um, yeah. So they were he's pulling down, you know, pretty good paycheck. His wife's a fourth grade teacher. So between the two of them, that they're doing okay and being paid by the government to plot an insurrection against the government. Now. There's plenty of insurrectionists whose arrests are just culminations of decades of involvement in far-right political circles. But Hostetter is apparently not one of these people. He really only became politically active and extreme in response to the COVID restrictions put in place in 2020. He first grabbed attention when he managed to get himself arrested at a COVID protest at the city pier where he grabbed a chain-link fence and refused to let go. Uh, until officers eventually had to cut the fence so they could handcuff him. And uh, a bit later, he founded a nonprofit group he called the American Phoenix Project, which he put in place in order to oppose the policies that Governor Newsom had put up uh, in order to try to stop the spread of COVID-19. Uh, in fact, Hosseters denied the, the, even the existence of COVID-19 publicly. So um, he used his American Phoenix project to file a lawsuit against Governor Newsom and lost it. Um, there have been a number of questions regarding the, the fi possible financial uh, violations at his nonprofit. So this is something that, that begins in, uh, I guess, late spring of, of 2020, uh, up through storming the Capitol. That's a, that's a fairly brief period of activism and radicalization. And yet, during this period, Hosseter manages to court uh, people in the, the far right in Orange County and even nationally, um, including Roger Stone. So, uh, which is, you know, interesting, right? Because, uh, you know, there's that, that California connection uh, between, you know, Stone and, and Nixon and Hosseter and that sort of odd Orange County thing they, they have going down down there. Um, 
according to the indictment, another person you made contact with, Russ Taylor, uh, becomes a director, eventually, of the American Phoenix Project. And he owns a printing company, um, lives in a $1.8 million house, drives a Corvette. Uh, he's a rather large man, physically imposing, over 300 pounds. Um, and he also made friends with uh, Morton Irvine Smith, who is a member of the Irvine family of Orange County. And that is the same Irvine family, of course, who founded the city of Irvine, which is a planned and developed community that was uh, developed by the, the, the family company. And they, of course, have been a fixture in California Republican circles for generation, and in part were responsible for giving us people like Nixon and Reagan. So Morton Irvine Smith is apparently the black sheep of the family, and uh, he was disinherited back in 1994, although he may have gotten some sort of kind of trust fund. Um, but, you know, uh, apparently at that time they were saying it was something like a $100 million fortune that uh, he would not be getting. Um, so whatever is in his trust fund, it, it's not that. Um, and according to news reporting at the time, he, he married a woman of whom the family did not approve. Uh, but there's, there's more to it than that. Uh, I won't spend too much time on it, but some of this is just uh, kind of irresistible, right? So again, Morton Irvine Smith, someone who gets on the board of the American Phoenix Project that is headed up by Hostetter. And uh, he's a big deal from an old money California family. And back in 1994, he had a wedding and... Um, the family didn't approve of the woman he was marrying for various reasons. And there was this very nasty and very public family spat. And uh, during this, his father, Morton Cappy Smith, who is a legendary figure uh, in uh, show jumping and horses generally, um, had this to say about him in an interview with the L.A. Times. Uh, the, the late Morton Cappy Smith had this to say about his own son. And I, I'm, I'm just going to take all the quotes in the article and just sort of uh, parse them together. I'll let you know when there are breaks. Quote, He grew up lying around the pool with a beer in his hand, nursing a hangover, and waiting to start another one. How long would you like to watch that? Every man who has a son hopes for something great. He's been a thorn in my side. He's the black sheep of the family, all right with a big bell hanging around his neck. And the other thing he said was, the kid is nothing more than a bum. When you act common, you are commoner. Noth nobody with an ounce of sense would have done that to his family. As far as I'm concerned, he's not my son. I don't love him. I think he's a shit. Now, in the article it said S blank blank blank, but I'm pretty sure he said he was a shit. So reading that, I doubt very much that it was just the marriage that caused these issues, the rift uh, between Morton Irvine Smith and his parents. His mother also had some bad things to say about him. And this is a family, by the way, that is traditionally revered, you know, sort of regarded its own privacy as in her family circle as sacrosanct. Um, but the patriarch and matriarch decided to go to the L.A. Times with public comments, so not happy with uh, good old Morton. Now, 
Um, interestingly, that, that, that all happened a year before Morton Irvine Smith's 1995 DUI and his 1996 cocaine arrest. So his parents think he's, he's a, a bit of a, a loser. Um, so I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, you could probably do an entire episode on the Irvine family drama or the antics that the American Phoenix Project got into the, you know, uh, with the, the anti-COVID restrictions. You know, really they had these, these pro-COVID events, right? Uh, they were part of this movement to you know, reopen uh, California. Um, and they sent buses of people around trying to look like they had more members than they actually had. But the key part is that three of them, um, who are, you know, the main movers behind the American Phoenix Project, Hostetter, the founder, and his buddy, his apparently uh, friend, Russ Taylor, and uh, the guy with the silver spoon, uh, Morton Irvine Smith, um, they turn this vehicle, this American Phoenix Project, into a... Uh, anti-Biden, pro-Trump organization after the election. So basically, they, they just sort of shift seamlessly from one disinformation campaign to another, from COVID disinformation to disinformation surrounding the election, which, by the way, is, is rather odd for Californians to do this. Republicans don't win California anymore, Right. So you're alleging election fraud. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, anyway, it, it, it's it's a bit absurd. Um, but that's what they do. And Hostetter and the rest of his group becomes more radical practically in an instant. They just, they shift from the kind of civil disobedience where they're hanging on defenses to protest reopenings or non-reopenings at the city pier um, to calling for violence, like literally calling for violence. Hofstetter drove from California to Washington, D.C. to attend the Million MAGA March on November 14th, 2020. And the, the American Phoenix Project itself hosted a Stop the Steel rally at Huntington Beach on December 12th, at which Hofstetter called for executions for the ringleaders of what he called a coup. So... At some point during all of this, the American Phoenix Project, Hostetter, Taylor, Irvine Smith, make a connection with the three percenters. And again, it makes sense. Three percenters would be going to all these same events. So they themselves are not three percenters as far as I can tell. Uh, nonetheless, they um, conspired with the three percenters to obstruct the counting of the Electoral College votes on January 6th. So the other four men in the indictment, Eric Warner, Tony Martinez, Derek Kennison, and Ronald Melee, all from neighboring Riverside County, they're all people who are identified with the three percenter gang, according to the indictment. The reason why Hosser is really the central figure at the heart of the conspiracy indictment is that the indictment states that it was Hosser who established an encrypted telegram chat channel on November 10th, 2020, with the goal of organizing the activities of local extremists 
to oppose the legitimate election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. On December 20th, the day after Trump tweeted his wild protest tweet, Taylor, Russ Taylor, renamed that channel the California Patriots Answer the Call January 6th. And then at the end of December, Hofstetter closed down that channel and established a new one, which he entitled California Patriots DC Brigade. And so you see a lot of people referring to this group as the DC Brigade. Um, so all the people charged in this indictment were participants in the channel, as well as more than, again, according to the indictment, 30 other individuals. Now, it'd be interesting to know the status of these other individuals, whether they also traveled to D.C. to join the Trumpist mob. So, you know, if they didn't, that means participation. Uh, you know, you had 30 people participating, uh, and uh, it's about 16.16, two-thirds percent uh, who actually wound up participating, assuming no one else on the channel winds up getting an indictment. So, uh, from what they said, according to the, the, the goals, the initial statement of what the channel was for, quote, this thread is exclusive to be utilized to organize a group of fighters to have each other's backs and ensure that no one will trample our rights. Also, if there is key intel that we need to be aware of, tor possible threats. That he meant T and the F. They're, they're close together on the keyboard. He added, in the hostetter again, I assume, I am assuming that you have some type of weaponry that you are bringing with you, and plates as well. Of course, those ceramic plate carriers that they are so fond, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and other uh, gangs of this type of wearing. Taylor also asked members to identify if they had previous law enforcement experience, military experience, or, quote, special skills relevant to our endeavors as well as the, the planned date and time of the arrival in D.C. So that's actually directly uh, from the indictment. So it's clear from the language used that the participants came to D.C. prepared for the possibility that they should commit political violence. Moreover, it's also evident that they had the notion that they had been invited to do so specifically at the behest of President Trump himself. And we've seen this in other indictments as well. Uh, specifically, Hostetter cited the, the, the December 19th tweet, which was posted by Trump at 1.42 a.m., that read, quote, Peter Navarro releases a 36-page report alleging, allegation, alleging election fraud more than sufficient to swing victory to Trump. And he then lists the URL. A great report by Peter. Statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, will be wild. Oh, Shane Leiden Jenkins also cited this tweet. Um, and many others do. It's, it's described in the indictment. For some reason, the DOJ is taking careful note any time uh, any of the insurrection participants uh, saw mention this tweet in their communications. So... That's interesting. Maybe it'll go somewhere. Hope it does. Later that day, Hofstetter posted this to his Instagram. Quote, Late last night, President Trump 
tweeted that all patriots should descend on Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, 1-26-2021. This is the date of the joint session of Congress in which they will either accept or reject the fake, phony, stolen electoral college votes. I will be there, bullhorns on fire, to let the swamp dwellers know we will not let them steal our country from us. I hope you can join me, exclamation point, exclamation point. Hashtag fight for Trump, hashtag stop steal, hashtag save the republic, end quote. So, yeah, I, I, that's pretty clear, right? That there's, that's a clear statement of intent to obstruct the counting of the electoral college votes. And in the context of a, uh, an encrypted channel with over 30 members, that is clearly a conspiracy, in my opinion. I'm, you know, if I were on the jury, anyway, I'm not an attorney, but if I were on the jury, I'd say, yeah, that looks like a conspiracy to uh, obstruct an official proceeding. So various defenders of Trump have de- claimed that this wild protest didn't necessarily mean violence or storming the Capitol, but we see this time and time again in the indictments. Trump supporters immediately made the connection between this wild protest language and the idea that they should travel to D.C. to obstruct the counting of the Electoral College vote. If there's ever any attempt to impose legal consequences on Trump or his inner circle, of which, by the way, I've been continuously skeptical. You can go all the way back to episode one on this. Nonetheless, the connection that the DOJ is making here is extremely important. Trump tweets about the wild protest. Hostetter posts publicly about the counting of the Electoral College vote on January 6th, and privately, he's making good on that. So publicly saying, well, this is wrong, and privately saying, this is wrong, and we should bring weapons to Washington, D.C. On December 19th, Hostetter and Taylor make reservations at the Kempton George Hotel in D.C., which is within ease walking distance to all the events on January 5th and January 6th. Meanwhile, the three percenters make arrangements to rent an SUV to drive to D.C., citing the fact that they have a lot of gear. Um, it's a bit interesting that while Taylor and Hofstetter are staying at the Kempton, which is a boutique hotel that has hosted the likes of Dana Rohrabacher and Marita Boutina, the three percenters are apparently staying at the Courtyard by Marriott, which is about $40 cheaper. Personally, I, was, I would prefer to stay at the Kempton, but they're, you know, they make the reservations a couple of days later, so maybe there's there's not space there. I don't know. It's better to go with, you know, the uh, Beaux-Arts Revival uh, building closer to downtown. Um, but, you know, that's just me. Uh in public, they were saying things like what Melee posted to his Instagram account on December 27th. Quote, January 6th, Congress counts the electoral votes. Congress meets in joint session to count the electoral votes. The vice president, as president of the Senate, presides over the account and announces the results of the electoral college vote. We are going to be there to show support! Exclamation point, end quote. In private... On the Telegram channel, they were saying things such as what Taylor posted on December 29th. Quote, I personally want to be on the front steps and be one of the first ones to breach the doors. End quote. 
And of course, they have various conversations about needing guns, but also that they shouldn't openly talk about their need to bring guns. So the telegram stuff is pretty damning. Uh, generally speaking, if you're going to engage in a criminal conspiracy, it's not a great idea to create an electronic record of it, whether you're Dick Nixon or the Three Percenters. One of the things that distinguishes this indictment from some of the others is the link between the American Phoenix Project and the rally on January 5th, which was basically the, the alt-right version of the rally that was held by Stop the Steal on January 6th. Hostetter, Taylor, and Person One, the unindicted co-conspirator, Morton Irvine Smith, all spoke at the rally on January 5th. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we can have great confidence that Person One in the indictment is Morton Irvine Smith, because the indictment says that Person One was a featured speaker at the January 5th rally for the American Phoenix Project. And the only three people who spoke publicly on behalf of the American Phoenix Project on January 5th were uh, Hostetter, Taylor, and uh, Morton Irvine Smith. So most of the other speakers who, who spoke that day, uh, with some exceptions, such as uh, Coy Griffin, didn't do anything on January 6th that resulted in charges, at least not to date. And Hofstadter and Taylor were also seen with Roger Stone on January 5th. So if you're looking at a link between the people who stormed the Capitol and the organizers of the rallies, this potentially could be an important case. And, of course, the other thing that you can see from all this is that it's, again, pretty clear, Morton Irvine Smith is cooperating. And so was would have been the one who handed the government the keys to the Telegram chat. There's no other reason why Morton Irvine Smith wouldn't be indicted. Um, you know, it's pretty clear in the charging documents that he took part in the conspiracy, even though he, he may not have uh, intruded upon restricted grounds in such a way he, he somehow got lost from Taylor and Hossetter. Now, there's another interesting tidbit that sort of supports this theory that Morton Irvine Smith flipped on his American Phoenix Project compatriots. If you go to the American Phoenix Project website, you'll find the following statement from Alan Hostetter. Quote, Dear friends and supporters of the American Phoenix Project, I'm currently working with my attorneys to legally dissolve American Phoenix Project as a nonprofit organization. This has nothing to do with the federal government's fraudulent and corrupt indictment against me related to the events of January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol, nor does it have anything to do with the mainstream media's completely defamatory attempts to destroy my reputation in the court of public opinion. Provided the federal government has not already destroyed the mountains of evidence that will lead to my acquittal in any court of law across this country, I will prove this deep state corruption in court, whether it be a criminal court or a civil court. The primary reason behind the pending dissolution of American Phoenix Project is that, completely unknown to me at the time, my board of directors was thoroughly corrupted and compromised back in the fall of 2020. This only became apparent to me on or around June 15th, 2021. As such, 
I have refunded all donations received on or after June 15th, 2021, and I have begun the legal process to dissolve the organization. Although, due to the circumstances of the dissolution, there may be some tricky legal issues to navigate through. So, Hofstetter's initial appearance was on June 10th. Uh, I assume he's still on good terms with Taylor, but again, you know, maybe it took him about five days to realize uh, what had happened and who had flipped and given the Department of Justice the keys to the city. This reminds me a little bit of the Oath Keepers case, where John Schaefer cut a deal with the government. Who's going to flip in these kind of cases? The guy with a successful touring career as a heavy metal guitarist? The trust fund baby? It's the people who have the, the access to excellent legal representation. People say, look, you need to get in there and cut a deal. Um, as far as we know, there's nothing pending against Morton Irvine Smith, uh, who, again, on the day, on January 6th, apparently became separated from Young and Hofstetter and seems not to have violated restricted grounds in the same manner that they did. But, of course, you know, he's, I mean, a documented telegram chats would have been a cons uh, participant in the conspiracy, so only time is, will tell whether or not there's going to be uh, consequences for him. Uh, there's some kind of indictment that has yet to be unsealed. Hostetter himself seems to think that Morton Irvine Smith was some kind of mole all along, right, who compromised the board of directors, but that's that's kind of silly. Um, you know, he's every bit as much, you know, he appears to ascribe to the same kinds of ideas as Hofstetter does, and just decided to, it was in his interest to talk to the government first. The classic prisoner's dilemma. All right, so finally we get to the three percenter group itself. Now, um, you know, these guys from Riverside kind of, you know, came along from the ride, right? Uh, organized along with Hofstetter, but they're part of a larger organization, uh, a very loose organization that I would adhere to what the late anthropologist James McLeod of Ohio State, uh, who died too young at age 49 uh, back in the late 90s, uh, he, he liked to use the term folk ideology, which I think is a great concept that political theorists should steal because it helps us understand so much of what's happening today. As you might suspect, a folk ideology isn't an intellectually rigorous set of ideas or philosophies, um, but it does have its own kind of vibrancy. It's more like folklore that anthropologists might study than what political scientists, uh, political theorists, political philosophy students usually study. A folk ideology is what you might expect when you have a political ideology that is itself based off the writings of the author of a blog. And at the center of the three percenter movement is the late Alabama man, Mike Thunderbuch. Um, that's how you pronounce it in Dutch anyway, right? Thunderbuch. It's got that hard G thing in the back of the, the throat. I think people in Holland have a little bit of spit to keep in the back of the mouth for that. Now, Vanderbuch always pronounced it Vanderbo. So that's the pronunciation I'm going to adopt. It's, it's kind of odd. He was very proud of his identity as a Dutch American, but for some reason adopted this uh, anglicized pronunciation. 
Vanderbo claimed that he had a rather interesting story. He said that he had been involved in the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and then had joined the SWP, the Socialist Workers' Party, and finally became a member of the Progressive Labor Party, which was a Maoist organization where he claimed to have taken part in these various underground activities designed to foment revolution, where he would like steal money from drug dealers and do you know different kinds of, of, of odd things on behalf of these Maoists. Now, uh, and of course, uh, you know, the SWP is a fourth international organization, uh, you know, founded by Leon Trotsky and uh, for many years affiliated uh, or centered, headquartered in New York City. Um, so it's rather odd. And there's there's been some skepticism expressed as to whether Vanderbilt actually took part in, in any of these kinds of activities, um, or at least that his involvement in left-wing politics and socialist politics might be a kind of an exaggeration. Um, I, I'm sympathetic to this kind of claim, right? I mean, if you've ever noticed, you know, how many baby-eating Satanists there are, uh, most of them appear to be people who are involved in evangelical fundamentalist Christianity, right? So it's kind of like the same thing is going on here. He's got this kind of a, a reformed center narrative that he's created. The late Lewis Proyect uh, wrote an entry on his blog arguing that Vanderbilt's claims are exaggerated, uh, if not downright fabrications. Uh, he wrote that back in 2016. And he actually raises the possibility that to the extent that Vanderbilt was involved with the left, he might have been an agent provocateur or a paid informant. Now, I'm not... I, I buy that uh, to some extent. You know, it seems plausible to me. Um, if, if you go to uh, Vanderbilt's blog, there's, there's not a lot of sort of, you know, left-wing footprints, right? Uh, he's mainly uh, very much conservative and, uh, you know, he tries to appear mainstream. He's, he's conscious of his, his reputation, but, you know, he is a, a far-right extremist who advocates uh, maintaining an armed citizenry as a counterbalance against the government. Um, on the other hand, uh, Vanderbilt certainly was, the, he was the right age to have taken part in the left when it was at its peak in the late 60s through the 1930s, early 70s. So, you know, I mean, I agree with Proyect on the whole, uh, and you should, you know, you can check it out. Um, it's possible. Now, this is another thing, you know, that, that I've considered. Maybe his involvement was simply marginal. Right, I think he was involved in the left to some degree. Um, I don't necessarily know that he was an agent provocateur, but maybe he was just someone who was sort of kind of marginally involved, like a hanger-on, uh, who became disaffected. Um, now, part of the reason why I think part of this story might be true is that, you know, if you were going to pick an organization to claim membership in fraudulently to establish your, your bona fides. It's oddly specific. The Socialist Workers' Party 
or the Progressive Labor Party, right? Uh, Project says, well, very few sort of, you know, I don't know, Shockmanite or uh, Fourth International types wound up becoming Maoists. But it's not entirely implausible, especially for someone as ideologically facile as Vanderbilt is, uh, that, that he might have, you know, made, made that kind of shift. He doesn't seem to be someone who's really capable of thinking in consistent ideological terms, even in, you know, his, his blog, his rather extensive writings. Uh, there are some rather notable inconsistencies, and it's really an odd choice for him to say, well, I was a Trotskyite and I was a Maoist. Um, you would think that if you were if you were only doing this to raise the specter of the left as a kind of a bugbear, like the John Birch Society did, he would have chosen the CPUSA, right? He would have said, I was a Communist Party member. I was a member of the CPUSA, and I did this. Instead, he paints this rather uh, shifting story of his activities all the way from the SDS to the YSA to being a Maoist. So that part is actually, to me, has the ring of truth. Um, he's trying on all these sort of different political personas. So, I mean, to my mind, the, the least compelling part of the narrative is this story he invents uh, uh, and uh, Proyact uh, details this um, about a uh, German or Austrian doctor who gives him uh, the road to serfdom, and he starts reading Ayn Rand. And I can't imagine an actually convinced, committed Marxist, uh, a Trotskyite or a Maoist, anyone on the left, any stripe, actually being converted by these these kinds of screeds. But that's what Vanderbilt would have us believe. So maybe he's right. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But I do think that just looking, you know, at his blog, and he's got a TLDR issue, right? I mean, he blogged incessantly uh, for over a decade that um, you can see some kind of traces of left-wing thought. Ideas that, that Vanderbilt might have stolen and kind of vulgarized. And again, that's why I call it a folk ideology. Beginning with the idea of the three percenters itself. Just about every article in the Three Percenters begins with the claim that the movement got its name from the erroneous claim that only 3% of the American population actually took part in the American Revolution. Now, to my mind, the fact that this is simply wrong, there's far more than that, isn't as interesting as the possibility that this might be something that was borrowed from the left. The concept of a, a vanguard party or a vanguard political movement. The idea of a revolutionary vanguard is appealing to a lot of people. Uh, why? It, it's, it's a lot easier to organize a committed cadre of disciplined radicals that is to build a mass political movement. But I also think the idea of a vanguard party, which the 3% movement, you know, by definition, kind of is, um, also really meets the psychological needs of people who want to join a small political group. It meets their psychological needs. It's a way of reframing the issue of the size of your organization. Your movement isn't small 
simply because it's unpopular or out of touch, disconnected with reality or cultish. No, your movement is small because it is elite and it has strength of commitment that's really a marker of a kind of prestige because only the members of the group have the correct party line and everyone else is deluded or lazy or somehow bought off possibly agents of the state or FBI infiltrators. So I, I do see some elements that, you know, maybe Vanderbilt might have been marginally involved in the left in the 1970s. Anyway, he founds the Three Percenters back in 2008 um, after, uh, you know, having taken part in the militia movement in the 90s. And it's pretty clear that, you know, some of this is in reaction to the election of the nation's first black president. He presided over the 3% movement rather informally from his blog, The Sipsy Street Irregulars, from 2008 to his death at the age of 64 in 2016. So coming out of the militia movement, Vanderbilt, again, as I mentioned before, didn't like the use of the, uh, the, the term militia to refer to his organization, uh, even though it borrowed many of the practices and the ideas of the broader militia movement with which it has many things in common. But, you know, this is 13 years after the Oklahoma City bombing and uh, the popularity of, of the militia movement has waned somewhat. But there's some common threads. And it, again, it's a folk ideology, so it borrows these uh, from the not lots of different places, right? Uh, you know, I'm asserting that you know, maybe he took some stuff from uh, left-wing politics, but he also uh, borrows some things from Christianity. He winds up borrowing some stuff uh, from the militia movement. Um, it has apocalyptic elements, right? So... Uh, the 3% movement involves this kind of secularization of the Christian apocalypse. It, it's part and parcel of their ideology. There's this uh, thread that runs uh, from the Turner Diaries, right? The thing that motivated Tim McVeigh to uh, commit the Murrah bombing in 95. Uh, and it's part of, you know, far right wing survivalist and prepper culture. Um, there's this sort of impending threat to liberty from the New World Order or some elite group or, you know, the Jews, right? Uh, always that specter lurking in the background. Um, and so in the face of this apocalypse, the only possibility is to arm the populace. And so that's something they have in common with militia groups. It's also performative. So... You know, uh, an ideology is useless unless it tells you uh, something to do, right? It's not empowering unless you have an activity that you can engage in, whether it be selling your party newspaper on the street corner or buying lots of guns and ammo, hoarding MREs, and, uh, you know, getting some AR-15s. So... Uh, like a lot of groups in the what I'm calling the militia gang subculture, there's an emphasis on direct action, what Vanderbilt called 
armed civil resistance. So civil disobedience, but armed. And um, so, you know, there's training with like-minded individuals. Um, and for him, just going out in public armed is part and parcel of three percenter political behavior. It's this kind of a routinized political theater where you're making a statement, you know, for guns, for the Second Amendment, for liberty, simply by participating in politics in an armed manner. Another thing that the three presenters have is that they are, of course, they're a paramilitary organization. So their militarism and being a militarized political movement is part and parcel of their ideology. Um, Vanderbilt specifically said that full membership in the 3% movement was open to military, the former military, reservists, police, firefighters, EMS, and uh, people involved in public safety and law enforcement generally. And associate membership was available for everyone else, which was really for him a distinction without a difference. As long as you were willing to arm yourself, uh, you could be a member of the group. But they placed a heavy emphasis on uh, looking at folks who were involved in law enforcement and other military and paramilitary organizations. So there's a bit of a, a live-action role-playing aspect to all this, right? Um, this is a group for people who want to dress up in a uniform and carry a gun. But we already have organizations in our society, formal organizations. If you want to carry a weapon, and wear a uniform, you can do that. So why is this attractive? Why not join the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or Space Force? Um, you know, I, to me, I think, in part, the difference is just the discipline or the, the lack thereof. You know, for the three percenters, there's no chain of command. There's no rules of engagement. There's no restraints. So... It's not surprising that, you know, we see a lack of discipline. Um, we don't see, we've seen a lot of criminal convictions of people claiming membership in the 3% movement. And other people have documented this. I don't want to necessarily go through every criminal act that's been committed. Um, but, you know, they've done some, some bad stuff. And... Uh, they try to legitimize these activities by invoking the image of the Minutemen of the American Revolution. But again, really, they are a rabble, right? They've got the equipment that they've bought. They don't have the discipline. They don't have the chain of command. They don't have the rules of engagement. Uh, they are essentially an armed rabble who, you know, has demonstrated a new willingness to overthrow the United States government, if need be. Another thing that they have is that they're Manichaean. Uh, they have this uh, either-or version of politics. Now, according to uh, Hobbes, we enter into the social contract um, that you know with each other to uh, create a sovereign to avoid the possibility of civil war. Well, for Vanderbilt and the Three Percenters, that's not bad. For them. Um, the possibility of civil war is something that authorizes liberty. For them, the possibility that you have an armed citizenry is itself a check on government. And they also see people who disagree with them as not 
uh, the political opponent who should be beaten in an election, but as a potential enemy who should be shot. And so, um, although, you know, he's, he's got these, these ideas about where political violence is, is authorized, nonetheless, uh, this is, there's this kind of John Birch, if you just go through, and I've read far too much of this nonsense, uh, but if you go through uh, the, the screeds that he put up on the Sipsy Street Irregulars website, which has been archived by his son since 2016, uh, since Evander Book's death, uh, you'll just find that, you know, there's just a lot of invocations of the possibility of political violence against the enemy. And he's not talking about uh, some foreign country, although he certainly invokes the, the threat of uh, Muslims and Islam. Um, but he's talking about people on the left, generally, right? And that's anyone who is, you know, to, uh, to the left of Newt Gingrich or to the left of, I don't even know how far right you have to be to include it on the people who aren't worthy of catching a bullet. Also, the movement itself, the 3% movement, you can't, you know, you can't doubt that the fact that, uh, again, in common with other uh, movements of the sort, is racist. Now, are there members of the 3% movement who are minorities? Yes. But it's really hard to miss the whiteness of the 3% movement and the dog whistles that they use, uh, particularly against Muslims, right? So a lot of uh, Vanderbilt's um, blog, you know, took place during the, the, the height of the war on terror, and there's just a lot of stuff about uh, domestic Muslims and uh, this kind of looming uh, threat to, you know, demographic and political and especially uh, you, violence, right? The threat of violence that is posed uh, by Muslim people, allegedly. So Vanderbilt himself um, liked to try to police the image of the group, and he would actively denounce Nazis um, and people who were too openly racist. But the thing is, he had to do this an awful lot, right? So if your organization is attracting a whole slew of people who have racist ideas so much that you have to take a whole bunch of your time to try to denounce them, you may have founded a racist organization. And now that he's gone, right, there's there's basically no one to hold them in check. So, you know, there's you can sort of merge and sort of cross-fertilize between openly white supremacist groups and openly white supremacist ideologies. Vanderbilt himself, you know, was careful to mention black militias uh, in the context of Reconstruction. He was always careful to hold forth and in a kind of a tokenistic way uh, deploy um, the the idea of uh, black armed resistance. Right? And the three percenters themselves have sometimes uh, said that they were, you know, out supporting BLM. Yeah, <laughs> not, not really. But, um, you know, they, you know, are a racist organization. And they, in fact, there have been crimes of violence uh, committed by members, people who have claimed membership in the 3% movement uh, that have simply been inexcusably racist. 
Another characteristic that I, I would see, again, from the, looking at his writing in the Sips Street Irregulars, is that Vanderbilt has got this romantic idea of political violence. He has a deeply romanticized idea of political violence. Uh, here I'll, I'll take a quote from one of his uh, posts. Quote, We view ourselves as expendable. We don't want to. On the whole, as Mark Twain's candidate for the hanging said, if it weren't for the honor of the thing, we'd rather skip it. Yet we know that someone must go first. Whoever it is will be chosen by our enemies. Again, the Manichaeanism. By the enemies of liberty and the Constitution, and not by ourselves. By taking the position that we do, it is not that we volunteer for suicide. We merely understand that to have principles means that eventually you cannot back away from them. Eventually, someone has to stand. And, in the nature of things, someone must be first. Like the machine gunner at the crossroads, we can only hope that the sacrifice will not have been in vain. And then, like Captain Parker's Minutemen, those of us who are still standing after the first fire will be ready, in overwhelming numbers, to give battle again but on different terms, our terms. And on our terms, we will restore the Founders Republic. End quote. So all this just fails to understand that fundamentally, uh, in a liberal democratic society, the state itself exists to get us out of the Habesian state of nature, the condition of war of all against all. Uh, part of the problem of Vanderbilt's group is that it is itself destabilizing and dangerous. So while it claims to want to restore the Founders' Republic, well, the Founders' Republic includes slavery, right? So, and again, with him out of the picture, there's no one to hold these, these kind of uh, more militant elements in check. Um, following the Capitol insurrection, one group, the Three Percenters National Council, disbanded and, uh, but that doesn't really matter. This is, that was one group in Mississippi that labeled itself national. And, you know, really, uh, this is an idea. This is not a formal organization with dues paying members and an organizational chart. It is, uh, a decentralized movement, something like, um, the Red Army Faction, uh, or, um, Al-Qaeda, right? So... In his founding post, uh, Vanderbilt listed a series of guidelines for the group. And two of these guidelines were no Fort Sumters and no Oklahoma City bombings, right? So it's interesting. He formed, you know, if you have to say that you're not going to shoot first or that you're not going to engage in terrorism, it might be that you've got the wrong approach because... Um, you know, it's kind of like asking people not to think about an elephant, uh, right? So, you know, don't think about an elephant. Don't, don't do Oklahoma City bombings. We're going to arm ourselves to the teeth, uh, and we're, you know, but don't engage in political violence. Um, you know, so his, his don't shoot first doctrine, eh, it, it's kind of sus as, as the kids would say. So whatever his intentions, uh, Vanderbilt wound up creating this 
decentralized terrorist organization that has no command and control. It's the military without the discipline. And that's highly problematic in an advanced industrial democracy. There's a reason why we don't have that. So uh, this is not a substitute. This is not, you know, some, some kind of uh, great thing that, that he's created. In fact, you know, he claims to honor the Republican principles that the founders espoused. But George Washington would have sent the army out against him. Okay. He did, right? He did. So, you know, he, he sent the army uh, to, to suppress the, the kind of insurrectionist threat that Vanderbilt represents. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please rate and subscribe and recommend the show to your friends. Uh, if you have any questions or comments at all, please send them via Twitter at cap insurrep. That's at sign C-A-P. I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P. Have a great week.